1: I have, we have long time relationships with many people, with many families at this church, including the Smiths family who are here. And um, a month ago, my wife and I, my wife is sitting over there. You can wave your hand, Lena. She's, um, and my daughter also, who attends KSU. Uh, A month ago, we were here, and we were meeting with Brian Foster, uh, with Rod, Rod, arranged that meeting. And Brian said, hey, we have missions week coming up. You need to return back and share your story, share the things you've been going through. So I started working on my sermon and I created this really cool uh, three-point sermon. You know, you don't do uh, four points because people won't remember more than three. And you also don't do two because it's not worth crossing the ocean just for two points. (laughs) So uh, I, I I really worked on my sermon, worked really hard. Um, and then I sent it to Rod Smith, and the response I got from him was, no. Uh, Rod, what do you mean? said, well, Oleg, you, you, know, you have a story. You don't need a three-point sermon. You have a story. You need to share that story. And that was one of the hardest challenges that um, I received because it meant bringing up, trying to recall all the things that I was trying to numb in my life, all the pains. So... Um, I, I, I went to my Facebook and to all the pictures and started looking at the things that were happening in my life, all the videos that I was recording during the war, also to my phone, trying to recreate, trying to recall the things that, um, that I've been going through. And um, the verse uh, today is that is from Ecclesiastes. There's time for everything, season for every activity under heavens, time for war and time for peace time to weep and time to laugh time to mourn and time to dance and um basically if we were to sum up that verse in one phrase what that would mean is that change is inevitable It doesn't matter whether you are a kind person or not. It doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or not. It doesn't matter how long you've been walking with the Lord. Um, All of that doesn't matter because change is going to happen in your life, whether you want it or not, just like it happened in in our life in Ukraine. We were not planning on this war to happen. In fact, let me tell you how much I was not planning on this war to happen. Um, So about a month, uh, a month and a half before war started, February 24th, We started getting all these messages from, you know, CIA, Pentagon, hey, Russia uh, aligned its uh, army in Ukraine and it's going to happen, like, they're going to attack tomorrow. And then, no, 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 they're going to attack next week or they're going to attack, you know, tonight. And what did I do? How did I prepare for war? Well, 30 days before war started, I went skiing. And that's how much we resist change when, you know, we don't, we don't want that pain in our life. So we're going to do everything. We will continue our lifestyle the way it was before because it gives us some kind of security in life. Well, what happened 10 days before war? My friend Randy called me and said, Oleg, uh, you know, What do you think? And I said, well, it's all going to happen. Can you bring that next slide? It's all going to happen in the eastern Ukraine. I mean, you know, look at that. Look at the map of Russian army. You see it's all the way on the west to the left near Polish border. Lots of Russian army in Belarus north of Ukraine and some in the east and some in the south. What was my response? And I've seen this map and I ignored it because I wanted my life to be normal. I didn't want that change. And so he said, Oleg, why don't you take your team to uh, Hungary for unnecessary staff retreat? And I said, no, don't worry. So what did I do? I took them for a staff retreat in the suburbs of Kyiv. And, um, and then he said, what, what are you going to do if, 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 if it all begins? I said, oh, we're going to get in our cars and we're going to drive. One thing that my wife and I did do, not because we were strategic, but because we wanted to calm our team down, we created a plan that actually we followed when the war started. February second phase of war started February 24th. So uh, February 24th, we wake up, 4 o'clock. You know, that's, what, that's the thing. It's, it is so Nazi to bomb people when they're asleep. And so we heard the sounds of bombing, Russians started bombing. We didn't have, I mean, this is how prepared we were, we didn't have a rescue suitcase, we didn't have any food packed. Like, we had, like, we were not planning on that at all. Uh, And so Lena Lena and I, I begged for my son and my wife to cross the bridges because I thought Russians would bomb the bridges so that people wouldn't be able to evacuate. And I was going to stay and then find my way out of Kiev later. So we were... um, we got into our cars, we grabbed all the people from our team. One of the most emotional moments um, during, uh, during this trip was people who were trying to take their animals with them. And I was, the one, I was that rude person who had to say no. And they had to leave their dogs that grew up from little puppies and cats and everything on the streets, just hoping that, you know, that they would survive. And, and that was that morning of getting everybody together and heading west to, uh, to Western Ukraine. So we crossed the bridges. We were in that. You can see the next slide. This is what Kyiv looked like. So we spent five hours in that traffic jam. Very few cars going uh, into Kyiv. Lots of massive number of cars leaving Kyiv. And my son had his um, wedding planned for, uh, for, um, for the month of May. And he said that I, you know I'm not going to leave without my fiance. His fiance said, "Oh, like I'm not going to leave without my mom." So we had everybody on board traveling. I, yes, we did have one pet. We had we had pet rat or rat pet. We had that one because that's the only thing we could take with us. And so that traveled all the way to Spain. Um, and so we were we were travel we we're trying to escape from Kiev. And um, we, when we came to Western Ukraine. When we came to Western Ukraine, it was uh, we were at this hotel, and very uh, very soon that hotel was turning into this uh, hostel where like the hotel uh, staff were throwing the mattresses on the floor, and they were uh, because that that town was exploding. So we all of my team like this women weeping, everybody wants to return back to Kiev to fight, and we had four staff who stayed in Kiev, and they said that's the most. Selfish thing, look at this, you want to do something for people. you want to you, know, you, you want to go help actually she said that 's the most selfish thing you want to do because you 're not trained to find you cannot provide uh, first aid and actually, if you were to return, then you would uh, you would be eating food that 's already becoming very scarce in, in, in kiev and so that 's when we made decision to cross the border. so the next thirty six hours we were on the border, and the next picture you see is I took it from my Uh, car. So, you know, we were in a car, moving one one foot every hour, but there were people just walking with grocery plastic bags with kids in their hands, pulling suitcases just to cross the border. At some point, I um, decided to go sit in my car and and, uh, uh, take a nap, because when you, you know, you wake up the whole 36 hours, kind of, you can't sleep. and, And then the next moment, there is this phone call from my wife, and my wife says, honey, I'm on the other side. I just crossed the border, they opened traffic arm. so I never kissed my wife goodbye. As fast as Russian army was approaching, it was just a matter of few days until they were gonna come and kill us in Western Ukraine. And that was the beginning of, um, of my time of, of weaving in this war. Um, <sighs> That night, I attended a a meeting with a group of pastors who were struggling to help everybody, and we had no idea where we were gonna stay because we couldn't stay in that hotel anymore. Our team left. There was just me, my son, and my technical director, And so this guy, um, uh, Andre, we call him Father Andrew, uh, Andrew, uh, you know, modern day saints are not the ones, are not the people with a skinny face and a staff. Modern day saints can be guys uh, driving their Audis, and he was the kind of person. He he was abroad when the war started. He made a decision to leave his wife and six month old daughter to cross the border, understanding that he would never ever be able to see them again and leave the country again. So he hosted us and um, he, he bought lots of carpet and mattresses through as many of them as possible on the floors in his unfinished house. And what he would do at night, at, during the nights, he would go in his town and he would see people walking with the grocery bags and, you know, all the refugees. And he would, he would go to them and say, hey, I have a place you can stay, which is also, you know, lots of weird people who did strange things in the midst of this. But he would go to those people and say, you know, I can help you. So he would drive them in his Audi to our house, and you know we would wake up at 2 or 3 a.m. in the morning, hear the noises. He would bring lots of people in, he would feed them, they would take a shower, they would sleep a little bit, and then he would send them off to Hungary and Slovakia. And that's what the modern-day saints look like to me. So we were in this house. Let me tell you about my team. That was me. My son, who is in the middle, my technical director, who is an Israeli citizen who didn't leave the country, his wife did with my wife and Red Pet and his daughter. Uh, The next person, the only girl who was with us was Marina. Her husband is a Ukrainian officer who's been fighting on the front lines since 2014. Imagine what she's been experiencing. By the way, uh, later during the war, she did get married over Zoom. That's a new feature of Zoom, get married over Zoom. Uh, and that, that works in Ukraine, so she got married. Uh, Sergei is a wealthy Ukrainian businessman who owned a big 30% of Ukrainian water delivery, of key of water delivery market. And, and also that's not, you know, it doesn't matter how rich you are, how many interests you have, change May happen to you as well, like that, so he, his wife uh, had to go abroad, and then um, Andre worked for British uh, accounting firm. The next group of people were. Um, a journalist, Roman, uh, Sergei, who spent three days in the sub, in the sub, down in the suburbs in Kharkiv. Kharkiv was is on the border of Russia, was heavily bombed. And without showers, without anything, his wife told us horrible stories about stuff that was happening. He worked in Dubai doing detailing for Rolls Royces and Ferraris and Maseratis that sheikhs have there. and And then the next person is Dima, who was a very strange character. Because he would say that we should uh, Christians should not fight. Christians should not protect their houses. We would ask him, "Well, if anything, if anybody would attack your wife, would you protect your wife?" Yes. So what's the difference? And he couldn't answer. But he would say that Christians. Very later, he was kicked out from our house. He was he was passed down to another ministry where he could say things like this. So, whenever whenever you are. Yeah, Father Andrew, Father yeah, modern-day saints not only drive Audis but they can also make such executive decisions. Um, and whenever you as a Christian get into that type of situation, where do you try to find hope? You try to I try to find hope in the Bible, right? So I open the Bible. If you were to Google Bible and hope, I guarantee that this verse would be one of the first verses to come up and it says, "For I know the plans I have for you," declares the Lord, "plans to prosper you and that's where I broke, because that was enough. For me, at that point, um, was the moment when I didn't believe the Bible. And my cry to God "What God, this is such a lie. What about all of those people who were killed? What about all of those people who were burned with, with the used tires that they would put over the dead horses in your and bucha? What about all the you know, everything that happens, they will never prosper. They will never have a good life. And that's, you know, one of the things about change, change is saying, it's change means something dying in you from your previous lifestyle. It can be anything. It can be you know you had a very nice sweet child in your house, and all of a sudden this child is a teenager, and you have no idea whether it's even your child, you know. And uh, and it can be it can be something going on with a spouse, with a friend, with with anybody. You know, it's something dying, and it hurts, and you weep, and it's so it's so hard. And um, and so we were. Um, th- I was just really struggling with that, and I couldn't find hope in the Bible because because, because for many people, you, they would not prosper. And what was dying in me is my Hollywood version of Christian life, of everything's hard, and then, you know, the Job version, the Job ver- Hollywood version, were, and, and you will prosper at the end, and you will have more cattle, more women, more everything, you know, and that's something that I did not believe was gonna happen because Russian army... W- the uh, surrend- uh, Russian army uh, conquered so much of Ukrainian land at that point. When you as a Christian face any kind of struggle, um, and your faith is attacked, not your pocket, not your relationships, your faith, it is very, very difficult. Because your faith If you're a true believer, your faith is not just one of the segments of your life. Money is one of the... Well-being, your health, your relationships, doing good work are the segments of your life. But your faith is your core that everything hands on. And when that core is snatched from under your feet, that's when you feel absolutely hopeless. So in our house where we lived, every day, somebody would just break. Somebody would lay... The whole day on the floor, just weeping, because they were saying they were realizing that their old life died. Somebody realized they would not be able to see their wife or children. Somebody realized they lost their business, and and everybody, everybody was struggling. There were days when I would go wake up in the morning and go yell at everybody, just because of that, that hopelessness and that emptiness that we were experiencing. And and even though I didn't find. I didn't find the words of encouragement for me in the Bible. I actually find it in the words of uh, Austrian Jewish psychiatrist, Viktor Frankl, who spent two and a half years in the Nazi concentration camps, and uh, which actually there is a verse in the Bible that very clearly speaks about it. But when I read that in the midst of all this hopelessness, I I read his quote and it said, the first people to break in the concentration camps were people who believed that everything was gonna end soon. The next were those who believed that all of this suffering will never end. And the only people who survived were those who focused on work every day, on their actions every day. And, and so those were, those were two, two things. So there is a verse in the Bible that very clearly says, don't worry about tomorrow, worry about today. Does that, is that, uh, does that relate to every situa- life situation? No, but it does relate when we are in the midst of suffering, when we're in the midst of tragedy, and that definitely helped me to focus on day. So, February 24th, people started sending us uh, all kind, all, all, many, many messages, some messages, and, and were sending us uh, also support. Some messages were like, hey, we're praying for you, and since I was one big, open, reactive wound, you know, my next answer, my answer to them would be, that's it? And some people would just disappear. They wouldn't say anything. And some people say, you know, some people said, no, I contacted our governor, I, co- governor, I contacted our senator, and um, and I asked them, you know, to 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 help Ukraine. And there's. There, These days, you don't have to go to Washington, D.C. to protest. You can protest from your sofa. And you will scare the politicians if you can do that in masses. And so we ask many people. Some people would try to engage us in in their uh, trauma, American political Biden trauma, and say, oh, we're so sorry about our government and that they don't do anything. You know, actually, honestly, I don't think that your next government will be able to do more than what your current government has done for us in Ukraine because of all the things that I watch on TVs from different representatives. So, you know, so people, people, would just start, people would just start supporting us, you know, and, um, and uh, some people would start coming. You know, Rod Smith was one of few Amer- Americans didn't travel. Department of State, everybody said, do not travel to Ukraine. No, Rod Smith, with all the kids and wife, he gets on the plane, he goes to Ukraine. That's how much we listen to our spouses. And, um, and so a few things that helped me uh, something that didn't help me at that time was people who are trying to be smart and give me advices because that's, you have no idea how I feel, you have no idea what pain I'm experiencing, you know, do not give me those advices. Don't be Job's friends. Um, the, the, so th- th- think, two things that help, words and work. Words, our board of directors made a decision to meet with us every Sunday morning. You know what we did every Sunday morning? We wept. That because we had a board meeting, I had to give report. So as I gave report, actually I was getting—I was—I was getting rid of that pain that was in my body, and I was. Um Len and I would talk about how we're doing, and then we just weep. We would sit and weep with our board. And I, I was the luckiest out of my whole team that I had people who would weep. These are—I mean, these are people like you on a board. They—they have comfortable American lives. They wake up in Orange Beach, you know, live, uh, you know, on the uh, on the Gulf. They wake up here, and yet those people have chosen to weep with us, to go with us, to be with us the whole time, even though they didn't have to and um and so that that helped us a lot doing my blogs and sharing about things that we've been going through about our pains about taking war personally uh was a lot of help people who were sending us money was really helped us the next thing we did was focusing on our work, and so we started providing humanitarian aid. Lots of grocery stores shut down, so we, you know, people like dairy farms were pouring mil- tons, hundreds of thousands of tons of milk in the ground because nobody was gonna buy it. So we arranged for the pastors to get that, hum- to get that food directly from the local food producers, and they were, they were getting that from them. Um, my son and my nephew were delivering humanitarian aid, and, um, and they called me and said, Dad, you know, we're in this village that was just liberated. We need water. And I'm like, guys, what are you talking about? People in the village were the most equipped to face this. They said, because they have wells and they have, you know, j- canned jars with food and everything. And they said, no, when the Russians were leaving, they knocked down all of those jars, and they took canisters of diesel and poured it into people's wells so that people wouldn't be able to drink. And so we, that's what we were doing, uh, you know, in, 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 in all of those months. Another thing is, yeah, as we were delivering food into the uh, refugee shelters, you walk into this big open space like this, and there are lots of bunk beds, and there are parents there. The only thing they do, they're stuck with their phones. And for months, they, did not, they wouldn't say a word to their children because, you know, you are traumatized, and your children are traumatized, and you do need to talk with them to help them talk through war, but you have no idea how. And so that would just detach from their children, so I thought Man, we should do something for these kids And since we were doing robotic and coding classes for kids I thought I would drive to the besieged uh, Kiev and I would bring all of those robotic kids because if Russia bombs our office They will burn like you know what are they good for so secretly away from my wife so that she wouldn't know and wouldn't worry about me I I went to Kiev and I picked all of those robotic kits and also a coffee machine, because I have a good coffee machine, and you cannot fight without good coffee, and it really helps you fight. So I, I, you know, it was really weird going through checkpoints with lots of robotic kits and a coffee machine. They're like, who are you, guy? So, uh, so I brought it to Western Ukraine, and we started robotic clubs. And it's not arts and crafts. It's building robots. It's serious. And you could see how kids were into these robots and how they would redirect their attention from war. And one of the sweetest moments was three months later, some of the parents started joining those children around tables and building robots together with kids. That was the first time in months that parents connected with their kids and played. And, um, as we were doing humanitarian work in Ukraine, as we were you know, launching more and more of those robotic clubs, my wife was with her team, uh, in Spain and in Poland. And you can see on the next picture, graduation party from one of the Ukrainian schools. And that's what Russians did. They, didn't, they don't just bomb military uh, objects. They also build schools and they also build, uh, bomb, they also bomb schools. They also bomb maternity houses. They, uh, they bomb kindergartens. And uh, because it's, it's such an army of rapists and looters, that's who they are. And they think that they're gonna scare us, that we would, you know, give in. And so my wife continued school. We were running, the, to our knowledge, the largest digital online shelter for the kids, where they could connect with a with a new friends, with a new adults. We had many American teachers who were involved, uh, and they, were, they, were, they said, "Man, we love connecting with your kids because they're they're the only kids in our lives who would say thank you for actually being with, with them." So, um, so that that was that was our time. To, to help the kids and also to to be healed as we were and that 's one of the things about even if you are suffering that's serving is one of the things that you could also do for others, and that would also help you help you heal um, besides time for war there is also time to heal. My wife has been through a psychological first aid training and she said uh, that um, even if a war would have stopped today, it would take another seven years for children's emotional, emotions to stabilize. That means, The kids in Ukraine today who experience war trauma will never, ever, ever be able to return to the same emotional state that they uh, had been before war started, but we could at least help them stabilize a little bit. We we were running summer camps. That was the craziest idea, to run summer camps in the midst of war, again, to redirect their attention. And we were running those camps, and uh, so this was, this was six months after war started, and we were working with the kids and helping kids. We thought trauma was gone, you don't, and that's the thing about traumatized people, very often you don't see, it. it's not like, the, you know, they have black face or red face, they looked normal. But as soon as there was, they were playing outside, we were running games for them, and, and as soon as there was a thunderstorm, those kids ran into basement, hid onto the tables, and were screaming. Because trauma is something unseen. Trauma is not something that many people are going to talk about. But it's definitely there. It's definitely their hearts. And we are on the edge of losing the whole generation of Ukrainian children if we don't help them. And so, I know that Ukraine is not in your news anymore. And, um, And it is still very, very hard. For us, the war is not over, the hunger is not over, trauma is not over, and my plea to you this morning is please don't give up. Please don't give up on Ukraine. Please don't give up on these kids. We are committed for the next seven years to be helping these kids. Another challenge to you guys, we're not the only one with trauma. I'm sure there are lots of people in the States, maybe somebody you're walking with, maybe it's your child, maybe it's your friend, there are people here who need somebody to walk with them just like many of my friends, like my board, walk with me. Somebody, you, somebody that can weep with, somebody who can be just, just be with, with them in the, in the times of darkness. So... And maybe you are the one who is that victim, maybe you are the one who is struggling with pain, maybe something in your life that died from the past and you are struggling with all of that inside. Very many people try, there were people who came and they tried to cheer us up, pretend there is no pain and that doesn't help. But somebody who can walk with you, be with you, do not walk alone. I would have never made it to where I am today if it were not for people in my life who wept with me. Mourning when you lose something is good. It clears you. It draws you closer to God and to other people. So I beg you not to give up on us as a country. We're not going to give up in this war, definitely. So we're going to stand. But we need your help. And these kids need your help. And there, there is somebody in your life who needs help. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for uh, being near when we don't see you because it's really, really dark. For not giving up on us when we are react- reactive, when we don't believe you, when we don't trust you, when, we, when, when the words you say in the Bible contradict what we know or what we, or, or what we think we know about you. God, I pray that as a a result of all this suffering and all this strategy, somehow in a known to me way that you would be able to bless us as a country, to bless people who are here, to bless people who experience struggles. And thank you for the lessons of pain that you've given me and for, I'm not sure what's gonna happen tomorrow with me, with my family, but thank you that today we're alive. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen.
0: let me bring this to why I wanted us to hear this story you know today's mission's Sunday here one thing that after talking with Oleg that really struck me is that if he can live the gospel in such a way even in the midst of war in the midst of being divided from family, in the midst of not knowing what tomorrow brings where am I? Where am I? And I can't tell you how many excuses I pour before the Lord, right? When I know He's calling me to do something, move in a direction to do something. One of the things of this last month, just thinking about Oleg and his ministry and how they are still not knowing what tomorrow looks like, living the gospel out, man, God has convicted me of how, Lord, can I make steps of obedience every day? Church, this is what we're going to do for our invitation today. I just want you to put that thought before the Lord today in your life. Believers to say, hey, God, where have you planted me to flourish and to represent your kingdom, Lord? Lord Jesus, walk with us during these next couple of minutes. Speak to us, God. Show us how we can be the hands and feet of Jesus. It's your name, Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon. Were you inspired? Maybe you've got questions. Do you want to know more about Jesus? Then we'd love to hear from and connect with you. So take the next step with us by visiting burnthickory.com slash next. Again, thanks for listening. And hey, stay tuned by subscribing and stay up to date by downloading the Burnt Hickory app.